You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is Dr. Brad Klontz. I'm Ted Klontz. I'm Jen Smith, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. My mom had it all planned out. After my father died, she figured there wouldn't be enough money for all three of her boys to go to college. So she set up this plan in her mind. And what she was going to do is when my eldest brother got to that age, she was going to sell the house, use the money to send all three of us to college, and then she would rent some little apartment somewhere. And looking back, it was ludicrous. She had just finished business school and ended up becoming a successful accountant, and then she remarried. And the truth of the matter is, during childhood, money was plentiful. Yet this connecting, the death of my father, having enough money and sacrifice pervaded my childhood. In fact, I clearly remember my mom being unwilling to spend money on things that she clearly deserved because it never felt right. And although I was very aware of this, I realized that I started doing the same thing as I became an adult. For instance, I rarely bought things for my own edification. I wasn't a thing person. Spending money became difficult for me. And only later did I realize some of that is because that's what I grew up seeing my mother do. Now, we can look at these stories and think about all of the foibles I had about money growing up in this family. On the other hand, I got a lot of great things too. I learned how to manage money and invest, and my parents were even involved in real estate. And the other thing that was pretty cool is I grew up in a mother-centered household. So I learned about money through having a money role model who was a woman. So as I got older, I think a lot about the stories that I tell myself about money and sacrifice and also about what it means to be a man. And speaking of the psychology of money, want to learn how to manage your money better and in less time today? Jim Wang created WalletHacks.com to help demystify money. For far too long, experts have made it complicated so they can make money off you. WalletHacks.com offers no products, no services, just information to help you become better with your money. And best of all, it's free. Check it out today at WalletHacks.com. That's W-A-L-L-E-T-H-A-C-K-S.com. And be sure to sign up for their free newsletter.
Brad Klontz is a managing principal of Your Mental Health Advisors. He is a financial planner and financial psychologist and author of multiple books, including Mind Over Money, Overcoming the Money Disorders That Threaten Our Financial Health. Brad, tell me, what is a financial psychologist? Essentially, I'm a clinical psychologist who got really, really interested in the psychology of money very much similar to trying to figure out my own, my own beliefs around money and my own behaviors around money and realizing that the basics of personal finance are pretty simple. Like people know we need to save for the future and not spend more than we make, but that's where most of us get into trouble in some form or fashion. And so really it's our psychology and our beliefs around money and how our upbringing impacts us. That's really been the heart of my work in the world. Speaking of upbringing, Ted Klontz is a founder of the Financial Psychology Institute. He has over 40 years experience counseling, consulting, and advising, and also an author of multiple books, including my favorite title, The Financial Wisdom of Ebenezer Scrooge. Ted, apparently this is a family business. Yes. Well, there are those moments where you hear families who pray together, stay together. Our legacy seems to be families that work together stay together. That's when we're at our best. I'm not suggesting that that's a really best practice, but that's the truth. And we both got into it about the same time, uh, starting at the same place that I was trying to figure out my behaviors around money. Brad was too. Very early, we collaborated and realized that neither of us knew what we were doing. And he's the researcher, and I'm I'm the guy who does things, uh, tries to turn abstract concepts into metaphors and pieces of information that people can use. And last but not least, Jen Smith is well known to the show. She's been a panelist multiple times. She is the co-host of the ever popular Frugal Friends podcast, and she's a writer at Modern Frugality. She's married to husband Travis, whose financial foibles may get some airtime here today as we talk about men and the psychology of money. He didn't know what he was getting himself into, did he? Absolutely not. No, but he embraces it like I knew he would. We know that he listens to your podcast, but you got to make sure that he doesn't get wind of this one. Right. No, I can be super candid here because I I don't think he listens to this podcast. So I enjoy that freedom. Although I want as many (laughs) listeners as possible, we will enjoy that freedom today. Brad, after reading your and Ted's book, Mind Over Money, it occurred to me that many of our financial problems may actually stem from our parents' misguided behavior toward or around us. Tell us, how did Ted Royley mess you up? <laughs> oh, that, that's a really great question, really putting us on the spot here. I think, that I, I think I even said this to him at some point. I said, I learned a lot about money from you. And he, he sort of was like, had one of those parenting moments where he's like, oh, wow, that, that's cool. And I said, yeah, I'm not going to do anything that you did. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, you know, for me, very specifically, like my father grew up extremely frugal, at least from my point of view. But as a kid, too, you're just trying to sort all this out. It's like, okay, so he's living in a home with other people. He eventually gets his own house. It doesn't have walls. But he's always carrying around this huge wad of cash. I also learned one of the biggest things I learned from my father. That's by the way, that's still a mystery. I'm trying to figure out and I can't wait for her to hear a comment on it. I also saw what, what, what I would define as a workaholic mindset. So my father would work insane number of hours. And I, I sort of vividly always remember seeing the back of his head or when I'm with him, he's taking me to work 
And that is something that I've been trying to unravel and understand in my own life because I definitely got the workaholic gene. And just, he can tell you the story too, but just seeing how this gene got passed down through the generations where I'm trying to make up for a, a relative multiple generations ago who was lazy and, and was a good for nothing. And all, there's all these people in our lives living out this script that was we, we inherited. It's not something I, I chose. I don't think it's anything he purposely consciously chose, but it's just this behavior and habit around money that's playing itself out in our lives. Ted, do you want to defend yourself a little bit here? This idea of these generational money scripts is interesting. I mean, isn't some of the way we get better in this world as we see what our parents do and then try to improve on it? Well, you know, I, I plead guilty, so the trial's over, right? <laughs> uh, it's just, what's the sentence going to be? But here's what, I, here's what I understood. This is what I knew about myself when I was trying to figure out, what am I doing here? I keep ending up in the same place, which wasn't a good place financially. There must be something that I believe that makes all this behavior logical. And that's really where I started, that there are no illogical beliefs or uh, behaviors, that every behavior is driven by a belief and it's a fulfillment of that belief. So there must be things that I believe about money that I don't know, right? And that's, that's where we began the investigation, or at least I began the investigation. And there was no family history around money that I was aware of. Everything that Brad's talking about and that I could tell you about my heritage I had no memory around until I started going, okay, so what was the first experience I ever had with money? Wow, okay. I can see how I'm carrying that out today in this very moment. What was my second, third, and fourth? And by the time I was seven years old, I got it. I know how money works. I know my place in the money world. I know what I'm supposed to do. And I had the marching orders and had signed them and signed on and had subconsciously and obviously I've been doing them my entire life. And uh, I remember falling into bed uh, many nights with this little voice saying, at least they can't call me lazy. I not be, may not be making very much money, but they can't call me lazy. And I'm thinking, who's they? No one ever called me lazy. I was one of those kids that would work as hard as any of the men. Number one, I learned that if you worked as hard as them, you got to eat first. And everybody else who didn't, they ate second. And there wasn't much left by the time the first feeding was over. So, you know, that, you know, it was like I was listening to those voices, but I didn't really understand what, and there was nowhere to go with it because no one else at the time when I started doing this, there was no one else I knew of who was dealing with any of this. It seemed like everybody else had their stuff together and I'm the only one who didn't. Even my wife said, oh, I don't really know what you're talking about because I said to her, I think there's something wrong with my thinking. I, I think poor. And she said, what's that mean? I said, I have no idea. But that's what's going on. I think like a poor person. Uh, I think like the poor culture thinks. And then it began on, you know, like taking that whole thing apart. Because I was trying to change my behavior. I didn't want to be a victim one more time. Ted, it sounds like this workaholic script was a concrete part of your family history you and Brad have both mentioned it. Was it there in both the men and women in your family or more the men? You know, I would say that my, my father's mother was a workaholic because at age seven, in order to survive, she was, she was orphaned out to a local family where she became their maid. And she learned how to sew and to embroidery and to clean house and to bake and cook. 
you know, and that's how she lived her life right up to the very end. She was still doing that. And it came from her father. I found all this out, some of it like five years ago, that my great grandfather came from Ireland as a poor person trying to care, care of two sisters and he never made it, right? He died in a poor house in Ohio. His parents died in a workhouse, which was a poor house in Ireland during the potato famine. And it's like, and my grandfather, my maternal grandfather saved, the legend was he personally saved the family farm during the Great Depression. And he worked from four o'clock until you were done. And of course, that it, it's only when it gets dark that you're done. And that's what I grew up in. It's like, this is what you do. It, you may not succeed, but at least you can't, no one can say you didn't try. And that, that was what I would call the work compulsion is the, you know, it's, it, I, I may not be doing the right things, but by God, I'm doing something. <laughs> and nobody can say I'm not doing something. And I wanted to comment on your frugality thing, because the same thing's true, still is about me. Nothing for myself. I'll wear, you know, I've got shirts that are 20 years old and pairs of pants that I don't throw away till the, the bottom of the legs fall off. But tools, I, I'll spend a lot of money on tools, which is exactly what my grandfather said. And that's what he did. We had the best farm equipment all around and the newest because we did custom farming. We did other people's farms, cropping and all that too. So I find myself doing that. Like I'm not buying anything for myself, but uh, I want the best Kawasaki mule that I can get because it's a work tool. Jen, listening to both Brad and Ted talk, it becomes clear that our relationship to money as adults often stems from those things we encounter as children. And the things we encounter as children are steeply mired in our family stories and history. Can you go back to your childhood and remember any of those quintessential money moments where you felt like you experienced something that affected your adult opinions of money? Yeah, I feel like the biggest influence was actually the absence of money moments and like money lessons because, and I think this is with like a lot of millennials and, and everyone, our parents don't want to trouble us with money so they don't talk about it. And so I didn't know until a few years ago what my parents' financial situation was. And my dad passed away in 2006. And so it wasn't until, you know, 10 years after that that I found out what my mom's financial situation was. And so that secrecy it, and it wasn't out of malice, but just the the absence of those conversations, I think, is kind of what drove me to be more open about my finances. And I'm not as open as like some people on the internet, but and I and I can just remember just feeling so lost too. So I feel like that feeling also has what led me to kind of run in the opposite direction of what my parents were doing with money. Brad, up to this point, we've been talking about the psychology of how we interact with money. And you guys have been really good, you and Ted, at putting together a framework for understanding how we interact with money. Let's talk about that framework a little bit. You use words like flashpoints and money scripts and money disorders. Can you tell us a little bit about what those terms mean? 
Absolutely. So essentially you can imagine it as a triangle with all intersecting lines. So our financial flashpoints are these early experiences that we have around money. Some of them are quite profound. They're like in your face, like you, you see your parents lose their home or something as you're growing up, or you see your parents inherit money and all of a sudden you go from being stressed about money to not having to worry about it. Or they can be really subtle. Things like Jen talked about where we didn't really talk about money. Like over time, that type of an experience becomes ingrained because what happens from these financial flashpoint experiences is we then develop money scripts, which are these beliefs that we develop to try to make sense of those experiences. So for example, not to put Jen on the spot, but as an example, um, not talking about money, a child will make up a rationale for that. Okay, so one rationale might be money's not important. That, that's one con- possible conclusion a child might draw, or perhaps money's too scary of a topic to touch, or it's, it's too anxiety-driven, or it's a taboo thing, like it's, unpo- it's impolite to talk about money. And so essentially what you're seeing is a child mind trying to make sense of what just happened. And the difficulty with that is a child's mind is a child's mind, and it doesn't really take the big context into consideration. But as Ted said, these beliefs then become our roadmap for life. And many of them are established when we're seven or eight, really young. And since money happens to be a taboo topic, there's not a lot of opportunities for us to examine these beliefs. Like, are they true? Are they not true? It's not like you're, you know, in high school sitting around talking about money, our beliefs around money, which you probably would do about your beliefs around a a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a relationship. And so we have those experiences, they lead to these beliefs and these beliefs directly tied to our behaviors. And we've done many studies on this. So these money scripts you have about money, money's not important, rich people are greedy, more things will make me happier, these types of beliefs directly correspond and predict things like your income, your credit card usage, your net worth, and a whole host of financial behaviors. Yeah, you're exactly right. So like the script that I had developed essentially was money is not something you keep or do things with. You just, you get it and you spend it. And so it's not something you think about what to do with. You you get it, you spend it, it's gone. So yeah, you're exactly right. Ted, as we talk about these things, we can consciously, right, the scientist in us can see ourselves making these decisions, sometimes maybe irrational decisions, but there's also a subconscious side, right? Uh, You've described it as the reptilian brain or even the monkey brain. There are different sides to the way we make decisions, and sometimes when it comes to money decisions, they're not always made by that scientist who's really working out the consequences. Tell us a little bit about how the brain functions when it comes to these money disorders. Well, uh, one of the metaphors that's often used is that uh, the brain is like a pyramid, uh, an iceberg in water. And an iceberg, nine-tenths of it are below the surface, right? We just see the very top of the iceberg. Our brain is like that too. In that nine-tenths underwater, 90% optimistically, pessimistically, 99% of all the decisions we make every day about everything are running. That's where they're decided, not at the top of the iceberg, but what's underneath. And our brain operates that same way. And you, you mentioned the word that they're irrational behaviors. They're really not. They're rational based on the programming of that bottom 90%. They're absolute, we never do anything that is not rational. Now, it may be different than what we think we want to do, but that 
that I wish I would or I intend to or whatever is trumped dramatically by this bottom nine tenths who really doesn't believe the top tenth knows what the heck it's doing. So, you know, we, Brad was mentioning, you have this childhood experience and a, a five-year-old who gets the experience of he stands still and he's good while his grandparent and another farmer talk to each other. The, the gentleman stands up and hands him a quarter as a five-year-old goes, oh, that's how it works. If you're good and if you're quiet and you do the right thing, people are going to notice and then you get rewarded. Now, on the way back to the truck, my grandfather could have said, now, look, I know that just happened, but that's really not how money works, right? It has nothing to do with whether you're a good person or a bad person or quiet or not. It happened to in this situation, but that's really not, that, that would totally keep me curious about, well, how does it work? But since there's no one in those moments who's willing or able to talk to, to what a child experiences, then they walk away going, okay, I get it. I know how the world works. And it almost becomes, well, it, it's it's deep program, just like there's all kinds of programs running underneath this time that we're sharing that we know nothing about. The only thing that we hear are our four voices. It's like there's a lot of stuff going on under there. That, and it's, it's actually determining whether anybody's actually listening to us. Or not. Brad, as I mentioned in my introduction, I feel like I had a unique upbringing with my father dying and having a very kind of female gender oriented financial learning as a kid, as I watched my mother wade through all of these financial issues. And so it always seemed unique to me. And I'm wondering, we've been talking now about flashpoints, those early childhood experiences that really affect our beliefs, opinions, and even our money scripts. Is there any gender orientation towards them? Do little boys have different flashpoints than little girls, et cetera? Yes. So this is a complicated question. So I'm glad you're not asking me easy ones, (laughs) but it depends on culture too. So for example, studies have shown that Latino families have a tendency to raise their children, male and female, equally in terms of the importance of managing money, understanding money. And there's so there are cultural differences. I will say with um, the studies that have been done on predominantly Caucasian families in the United States, what they find is a gender difference in socialization. So parents actually teach their children differently around money. And so, for example, boys are typically exposed to the family finances earlier. Their different set of expectations are put on them around independence, which, you know, is expecting you to get a job or be more self-sufficient earlier. Or This is sort of imprinted on you, like this is something you're going to have to do. Whereas girls are more inclined to be socialized, like it's, it's really okay if you become financially dependent. So when you ask them in college, like, you know, how, how would you feel about being financially dependent on others? You'll see males be not comfortable with that, whereas females will be more comfortable with that. And so this, this is an issue, frankly, for our culture, because one of the huge issues is that women later in life are much more vulnerable to poverty. And they're, they're if you think of a... Um, a male-female relationship, it, statistically speaking, it's a guarantee that at some point they're going to be on their own financially. And so lacking that f- financial empowerment is it has a huge cost for women in our society, including studies have shown that women who don't have that sense of financial independence and that sense of financial um, literacy, that confidence, 
end up end up staying in abusive relationships longer. So there's there's a whole host of problems with that, and it's something that I'm hoping that our culture is evolving. Ted, it's interesting. If you look, Disney was getting a lot of flack for this too. It's something we would call the Prince Charming fairy tale. And if we look at that in view of money scripts, this idea that women are waiting to be saved, whether physically or financially, and on the other side, men are being forced to be the saviors, right? To be the financially stable or to be the hero who rushes in and makes things better. Is some of this ingrained in our culture? Totally. And as you're talking, I'm remembering that I really see it as an oppression issue and a suppression issue and a control issue. In China, up until not too long ago, in order to, one of the reasons that they bound women's feet and made them like one-tenth of the size of a normal foot was to keep them in place, to keep them from wandering. And I really believe that in our culture, which is male-dominated, to keep women dependent is serves as a, quote, sense of safety for us males. And I don't think very many people are talking about that. So we encourage, you know, my father said to me, okay, you want to go to college, you got to sell everything you own. I can't give you any money. I'm saving money to send your sister to college because no man will ever want to marry a woman with debt, right? That was, <laughs> that was a powerful message. Like, okay, I, that tells me all I need to know. And, and obviously he had that I mean, he, he grew up with that somewhere. And so I, I think it is, you know, it, it's manufactured actually. And then we look at cultures where there's matriarchal dominance, if you would call that with all property and all possessions flow through the females, you know, they do just fine. And in fact, biologically, if you look at uh, studies about who's the most likely to do the right thing in a crisis. It's women, not men. Jen, clearly you are very financially savvy. You write at Modern Frugality. You are a host of the Frugality Friends podcast. Looking back as you got married, do you see any gender biases or roles that you naturally fell into from your childhood when you met Travis? I am fortunate in that I grew up in a city and a culture where women and men did have the opportunity to like be equally employed and equally empowered with money. And I did see there was a subset that I grew up around where, yes, there was the dependent like stay-at-home moms, but I wasn't as close to them as I was to other kids who had single moms who are sole providers and two working parents. So um, both of my parents worked. It was never a question of whether I was going to be dependent on someone for my finances because I grew up being like independence was a trait that I strived for. And and I I got married at 25. So I know for some people that's early, for some people that's kind of later. So I was already, I was on my own and doing my own thing for a while. So when, so when we came together, it was just, we are equal partners in this and, you know, and now we just passed the threshold where I make more than my husband and it was, and it's never been, 
an issue, we have like open conversations about it. And that's both something we're okay with. Brad, let's pivot a little bit to a very destructive force. One of the more worrisome to me money disorders, financial infidelity. First of all, can you tell us what that is? And second, is it experienced differently between men and women? So financial infidelity essentially is when you're cheating on somebody around money. And, you know, part of the definition does require that one person at least has this understanding or this belief that you're going to be sharing information. So it's built on this foundation of, of an understanding where we're, you're going to let me know about what's coming in, what's going out, and where somebody violates that understanding. And it, it can happen in many, many different ways. We've seen a lot of examples of this where people are buying stuff and hiding it from their partner or they're investing, making very risky investment decisions, not telling their partner about it or receiving money or gifts from other people and not telling their partner about it. Again, violating this, this trust that's really at the foundation of our relationships. And unfortunately, one third of Americans admit to engaging in this practice. And now obviously it can be smaller things or larger things. But the big threat is when this comes to light and how it comes to light, it can really rattle the foundation of a relationship. Because if I'm going on a certain assumption around how we're you know, communicating and what you're telling me, and all of a sudden I find out that for the last five years you've been doing this other thing, it can really start making me question the safety of our relationship. Can I trust you in anything? And so it's that sense of it's almost like a psychological earthquake to your sense of reality around your relationship. Ted, talk about this a little bit, especially when it comes to the money disorders of financial infidelity as well as financial dependence. Is there a connection between money disorders and domestic violence, suicide, and even homicide? I feel like there's a power dynamic there that can affect relationships. Yeah, I I think I would broaden it from those two things you mentioned. I I see a a disorder as something that I do or engage in that's self-destructive or self-defeating and resistant to my pledges to myself to change it. So, you know, we we went into the real specific ones, but I think, you know, that sort of drives everything. And the power dynamics in, in a relationship, money is very often one of the weapons used to do that. Either one partner spends more than they're supposed to and they hide it and, and there's some kind of, because they're trying to feed an extra amount of money to the kids that they don't want the other person to know about, it certainly rattles the trust cage. And what I always said is if I can't trust you about one thing, what else can I trust you about? And that, that it breeds all kinds of things. I think that in domestic abuse, the, it typically comes from a sense of low self-worth, my sense of that, and that there, there are many ways that the person with low self-worth expects the other person to do or not do to relieve them of that, that burden. And of course, money is, is one of those things. They do not want uh, their partner to come be, become independent because they believe that if they become independent, then the partner will want nothing to do with them. That's their fear. So uh, to keep them suppressed and, and all that. And typically a person in that buys into the idea that there really is something wrong with them, that they really did do something wrong. And you know their self-worth is hammered down too. And my experience is that people who get into relationships, like I think all relationships, we sort of come together with a person who feels about as good as themselves as we feel about ourselves. And not a whole lot, they don't feel a whole lot better, even though they may look better. 
They may act like they feel better about themselves, but what I found is they feel about the same. Because if I love myself and you hate yourself, we're not going to get along all that well. Because you're going to you're going to bring that stuff out on me yourself. You'll be criticizing me for the parts of you that you haven't made peace with, and I'm not going to put up with it. Because right? I don't think that about you. I don't think that about me. So that's a really long answer to the question you asked. But money is just a vehicle used to control. In the first half of the show, Brad, Ted, and Jen talk about some of the common types of money disorders. After the break, we discuss how power dynamics play into this. But first, you know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights, we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave, and two minutes later, we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later, you have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Want to learn how to manage your money better and in less time today? Jim Wayne created WalletHacks.com to help demystify money. For far too long, experts have made it complicated so they can make money off you. WalletHacks.com offers no products, no services, just information to help you become better with your money. And best of all, it's free. Check it out today at WalletHacks.com. That's W-A-L-L-E-T-H-A-C-K-S.com. And be sure to sign up for the free newsletter. Jen, it sounds like a lot of this has to do with power dynamics, at least when it comes to money disorders and couples. Yeah. I mean, power, it's a slippery slope for either gender, I think. So it just takes a lot of communication. And and I think like what we like going back to what we were saying about how your upbringing really influences how you deal with money now like it also has to do with like kind of marrying someone that has the same ideals as you or somebody who's willing to change their ideals brad as we listen to this conversation do men and women typically handle the power dynamic differently in a relationship when it comes to money some of it has to do with confidence which i think is a really interesting thing that has been shown to be different in genders So women will report lower self-confidence in terms of money and knowledge around money, whereas men are likely to report higher self-confidence. And one of the things that I, I like to talk about when it comes to that is that quite often, a lot of really terrible financial decisions are made because we're feeling really confident. And so, for example, 
day trading is huge right now. I'm not sure if you've caught wind of this. It's it's quite atrocious. And it's typically a young a bunch of younger males, frankly, who are in the, into the gambling mode around money. They don't like to think of it as gambling, despite the statistics that show that it's exactly like sports gambling in terms of your success rate. And so they get really excited about it. They're big risk takers. They're incredibly confident about what they're doing. It's actually, it's almost sickening to hear some of them talk about how incredible they've been doing in the last three months, you know, when the market actually had the biggest upturn in history last hundred years. But no, it's me. I'm, I'm brilliant at what I'm doing. And so the confidence becomes a huge issue because the studies show that actually who's a better investor, male or women. So we've just decided that women, based on the research, are have lower confidence. It turns out they're actually better investors and not by just a little, by a very significant margin. So they're performing at least 1% higher, which, which is an enormous percentage in terms of outcomes. And so one of the messages that I like to, I like to sort of bolster the confidence of women in the sense that their instincts around money, and Ted alluded to this prior, you know, there's a lot of research showing that if women were making some of these decisions, we'd all be better off. <laughs> and, and science definitely backs that up. And then also that sense of, I've got this, I know exactly what I'm doing, that sort of hubris that you know, can be easily sort of slipped into, especially if you had some early success. Like one of the things I say is that early success in a business or investing can be one of the worst possible things for you because now you start to assume that, oh, I'm really good at this. And we've seen a lot of examples of people just, you know, the ship, just taking the ship down to the bottom of the ocean because of this overconfidence. Yeah, it's so funny you mentioned that. I had somebody last week message me on Facebook on the Modern Frugality page, like out of the blue. I've, I don't talk about investing much, but they just felt the need to send me screenshots of their single stock investing from and saying like, yeah, I have about $3,000 in credit card debt, but I'm making like a dollar a day buying these certain stocks. And I think I'm really making out ahead and, and sending me all these screenshots. And I'm like, well, I don't know what you're trying to tell me there. You didn't ask me a question or anything. Yeah. So I totally see that. <laughs> Ted, do you think there is a generational difference? Do the baby boomers and Gen Xers, for instance, do things differently than the millennials and the Gen Zers? I think so. You know, the metaphor I use is I've been on the seas 75 years, right? I've seen many storms. I've seen the warnings, clouds, you know, and it's like being on a ship with a captain who's been at sea his whole life versus somebody who's 18 and they're taking command of a ship for the first time. And and what I what I learned about powerboating is that you keep the steering wheel straight. You point the boat where you want to go, and the bow is going to be thrown to the left and thrown to the right by the winds and the waves. And if you chase it, if you keep spinning the wheel, you'll end up going around in circles, right? Because you can't catch it. And like steady as she goes, that kind of thing. And I think that comes from been here before, done this. I've been through like five of these ups and down things. It's like, okay, I know what I'm seeing. And so uh, what what does it mean steady as she goes, right? (laughs) So I think that's a generational difference. And the idea with young people is we're going to fix this whole thing. We're going to fix it now. I was there. I'm going to fix the entire school system in America as that first year teacher. All they have to, you know, it's like, uh, okay, well, (laughs) you know, it's a big ship. You're not going to turn this around by being a guy swabbing the deck, right? And, but I love your enthusiasm and I love the creativity that will come out of that and the seasoning that comes out of that. 
So yeah, very, very much. And, and, and we get in trouble when an old guy like me starts arguing with a young guy who's 20 and trying to tell them that they're doing it all wrong. It's like both of us need under ideal conditions. We listen to each other's wisdom, right? And that's how collectively we get better. Nobody knows how to do this. I'm, I'm working, Brad and I are working a book now called The Irreverent Guide to Money. And the bottom line is none of us know what we're doing. Now we, we, we sort of know, we don't know if we're going to make it to the port. All we can do is head our boat in that direction. We might run into a whale. You know, the town might burn down by the time we get there. But, you know, this, this is the best we know how to do. This is, uh, you know, where we're going. And uh, it's just important to know that. I had a doctor once, uh, I used to coach baseball, and one of my kids had a fever blister. And, and he said, heat me up a paper clip. Like, he's the doctor, right? Heat me up a paper clip. And I said, well, that worked. And he said, I don't know. I saw it once in a war movie. And it's like, <laughs> okay. Like, none of us know what the heck we're doing. And it's like, that's good. We don't know what we're, don't get so, you know, there's a Marine thing is don't fall in love with your plan. Because after the first shot fires, the plan is kerplunk. But it's important to make a plan for that first shot. And that's, you know, that's what I would say about that be gentle with each other. Jen, our culture is changing. The generations are changing. And I'm looking at some of the cultural shifts. I'm thinking about the Me Too movement. And it's caused us to look very carefully about how men and women interact with each other out in the world. Do you think it's changed some of the financial conversation? Absolutely. I think we are becoming more open to having financial conversations. I think it's empowering women to say, I don't just have to talk about like my kids and my clothes and all this, but like I should also be talking about what I make and what my net worth is and all this stuff. It's like empowering us to not be, because it can be embarrassing because there are a lot of men on the internet sharing what their net worth is and how expensive the car they just bought is. And, and I think we having these movements, I mean, me too. And then also black lives matter and, and all of the, the movements that are really coming to the forefront right now, it's empowering people who don't normally open up about their finances to be more empowered to do so because when we start those conversations, knowledge is power. And so seeing like the difference between what you and your female coworker are making or you and your the person of color in the desk over, that that's empowering and that a lot of sh- shady stuff can only be done behind the scenes in the cloak of darkness. And so we have to be having more of these conversations to see change. And so I've just, I've just loved that like social media and the internet gives us so much power to do that. Brad, these social changes, I believe are causing a lot of good for our community as a financial psychologist. Are they changing the way you talk to men and women differently about finances? Are they affecting the way you would have had this conversation 10 years ago versus now? I think so. And, you know, to Jen's point, 
I feel like there's a welcoming and an urgency to have voices that previously weren't heard or, or weren't paid attention to much and putting them front and center and front stage. And I think it's a really, really beautiful thing because one of the, one of the problems and one of the mindsets that block people towards success is not, not knowing anyone who is successful, who is like them. And by the way, this crosses gender, it crosses race, culture, as well as socioeconomic status. And so one of the things I love is to hear um, stories about people. And, and for me, a lot in my social media, I talk about our humble upbringings, like growing up without money, and that you can, if you do these things, you can climb that ladder. And I feel like for me anyway, though, they're extremely inspirational. I think that having those voices from women and from African-Americans and from um, you know, other minority groups is just incredibly powerful. Because you'll, you have to think about the person on the other side, you know, that 16 year old or that 20 year old going, you know, I wonder if this is possible for me, because I don't know anyone who's and you find this very often in, in poor communities where you don't know anyone who's owned a business. And if you wanted to talk about becoming an entrepreneur, you'd get nothing but people sort of laughing at you or being or discouraging you and telling you all the reasons why it's not possible, or the stories that they heard or the three people they know that tried it and lost everything. And I think one of the biggest and most powerful strategies for blasting through some of those limiting beliefs is getting next to somebody and being in close proximity to somebody who's living something that you want. So they're a step or two ahead of you or whatever. And social media has just opened that door where you can be alone in your room, living in poverty and see somebody who looks just like you, who came from where you came from, who is doing something different. And I think it's incredibly powerful. Amen. I don't think I could have said it any better. I think we we talk so much about like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and like working hard, but to an extent there's this little girl or this little boy or or even this young woman or young man who wants to but they're in a community that doesn't support that. And like you are the sum of the five people you spend the most time around. And sometimes they're just not there are not people available around you that have experienced success or have the knowledge that you need, they're not available to spend that time around. And so the more people we can get to be open about their finances, somebody that's like you on the other side of that phone or computer or conversation is going to say like, hey, that person's like me. This is who I've been looking for. And you're going to be, you can't, you have the opportunity to be one of those five so yeah, it's so well said, Brad. So as usual with these podcasts, I went in thinking one thing and I'm coming to the end of our conversation thinking something slightly different. When we began this conversation, I felt like we were going to say that the flashpoints, the money scripts and the money disorders were different based on gender, whether you grew up a boy or a girl. As we talk about it, I realize that the basic framework seems to be the same, but our culture adds on these ideas of not just gender, but race and other aspects that interact with that framework that we've been talking about. So it's maybe we all start out the same, but then we get influenced by our culture, which does like to parse things out into these separate categories, whether that be race or gender or what have you. And as our society learns better how to connect the dots, 
how these movements like Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement have shown us that these cultural boundaries in some ways are not healthy for us. We see that the financial issues are fairly the same for most of us. And maybe that's good. Maybe if we can find an equal financial footing to start on, we can all begin the conversation at the same place and help pull all of us up together. I'm going to end this episode as I end every episode by asking each one of you what's up next in your life and where can we find you, Ted? What is going on and where can we find you on the internet? Well, I'm at consulting.com. And what I'm really involved with is helping people listen to and find out who they are. My experience and belief is that if we get that part right, then everything, including our finances, will take care of themselves. We'll have our own innate wisdom and we'll follow that. Jen, what's up next in your life and where can we find you? Every Friday, you can find me as one half of the Frugal Friends podcast. And then also everywhere else on the internet at Modern Frugality. And Brad, if people want to interact with you online, where should they go? And what is up next in your life? So I'm at Dr. Brad Klontz everywhere, but I'm really on TikTok. I, I sort of am slightly embarrassed to share this except I'm incredibly passionate there because I am talking directly to the people, Jen, we're talking about, and I'm going after, this is, this is the truth about day trading. This is the truth about people who are showing their flash, right? The gold chains and the Rolexes and the luxury cars. And essentially what I'm doing is taking all this extremely boring academic research, and I'm trying to make it really exciting and inter- interesting for 14-year-olds while I'm lip syncing and dancing. Yes, Brad. I I admire you. I'm so jealous. I want that's what I want to do that too, but like I am so nervous to go on TikTok. <laughs> Brad, one of the things I've learned about the best teachers is they're not afraid to go where their audience is. And that's a perfect example of you finding where can I have the most impact. And maybe learning a medium that well, maybe for you it's intuitive. It certainly isn't for me. <laughs> but willing to go to that medium because you realize that that's where people will hear you and maybe need to hear your message. Yep. That's why I'm there. I'm pretty passionate about it. And um, I worked with high school kids for a couple decades, you know, as a, as a therapist and as a coach. And so I, I speak their language and I also don't have a lot of shame. So dad, you did do a great job of sort of shaming me into uh, <laughs> good behavior, I guess. <laughs> All right. Well, I can't top that. So this has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Ted and Brad Klontz, as well as Jen Smith. That's a wrap. Welcome back to Real Life Stories of the Doc G Family. I know. I know you guys think I'm perfect, that everything I do works out the way it's supposed to, that no investment I ever get involved in fails. But of course, that's not true at all. In fact, this weekend was a perfect example of how one of my efforts to make money and be financially savvy just didn't work. 
You guys have heard me talk before about the fact that I own four rental properties. They're condos in the downtown Chicago area, and I've been having trouble with one in particular. So one of my condos is in the Gold Coast, a beautiful area right across the street from Bloomingdale's, a wonderful place to live, except when it isn't. So one of the people who owned the units in my condo complex weren't very careful and got an infestation of German cockroaches. And guess what? They went through the walls and got to my unit. I had two young tenants there, and of course, I started getting the phone calls. I couldn't do much about it. The condo association is in charge of all of the units, and so pest control was brought in. And after two or three springs, there were still cockroaches. And so we're in the midst of dealing with this cockroach infestation and all hell breaks loose in downtown Chicago, rioting, looting their gunshots in front of my apartment complex. The front doorman has to lock the door and shut down. I'm getting emails from the head of the condo association at 2.30 in the morning. And then, of course, things start to break in my unit. The garbage disposal stops working, the refrigerator all of a sudden gets warm. All of this happens at once, and what do my tenants do? They do the only rational thing. They move out. Here I am, sitting on a condo infested with cockroaches, broken appliances, and rioting occurring in the street right in front of my building. That's a mess. And the financial side of me was thinking, how am I going to make money on this unit? And in the midst of that, I stopped thinking about the money and started thinking about these poor tenants. They're both young women. They're both new to the city. They've never encountered anything like this before. They have a fear of insects. And all of a sudden, there's gunshots and looting out in front of their unit. And they wrote to me with a plea for help. And I immediately knew that I couldn't charge them full rent. I didn't want to lose money on the unit. On the other hand, I started really worrying about their safety. I mean, they were worried enough that they moved out and had gone back to their hometowns to live with their parents. So I did the only thing I thought I could. I set up a Zoom call, and we talked for 30, 45 minutes, and I told them that their safety was my first priority, and we decided to cut their rent in half, which, of course, I didn't love, but I thought it was the only fair thing, and I assured them that no matter what, I was not just their landlord, but someone who was going to look out for them, and we would figure out the finances, and first and foremost, we would try to keep them safe. I'd like to say that 10 years ago, I would have had the same reaction. I'd like to say even if my financial situation wasn't this good, I would still concentrate on the same things and say the same things to my tenants. But it certainly felt nice to know that even if I lost money on that unit, even if I lost money on all my units, I would be okay. And here was one of these rare chances to reach out and help a fellow human being, to try to take a burden off of them, to maybe even put myself out a little bit in order to make their lives better. And if you really want to know what the power of being 
ahead of your finances? What is the power of having an emergency fund? What's the power of striving towards something like financial independence and being financially secure? That's it. It's not allowing money to get in the way of you doing the right thing. It's something I try to be really intentional about, and I will keep trying to make these right decisions. But thank God that I have good enough control over my finances that I have the luxury of doing this. Because the last thing I want to do is cause harm or fear in another human being, much less a tenant of mine. Because when we sign that lease, we're making an agreement. And it's not just a dollars and cents agreement. In a sense, we're also agreeing to work with each other to do the right thing. And sometimes doing the right thing isn't easy, but it definitely feels good. So first of all, let me apologize. The problem last time was complete human error. I didn't hit the record button, which I've never done in 150 recordings. Uh-huh. So first and foremost, I'm so appreciative that you guys agreed to come back because I think the discussion really had merit. So I've already hit the record button, first and foremost. And I got it, for sure. Woo! <laughs> it's still being recorded. You know, it's funny enough, I think that conversation was probably better than our first one, but covered... I felt that I way think too. It covered a lot of the same stuff, but a little bit more nuance and just maybe because you'd heard the question before, but also it brought in some extra really good stuff. So maybe as much of a pain it is to do the same thing twice. You guys, again, brought it and this, I think is going to be an awesome, awesome episode. You'll, you'll be sick of me by the time it comes out because you'll keep on getting tagged on stuff. So That's awesome. Thank you guys again. I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for doing what you do. I think it's really important work. I think it's incredibly enlightening uh, and necessary. So You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.